You're listening to Stories Behind the Songs with Chris Blair. For more information, check out chrisblair.com. Hey, everybody. Here's another episode of Stories Behind the Songs. I'm your host, Chris Blair, and this week I sat down with Ryan Griffin. Ryan grew up in Florida working on a farm, and he moved to Nashville around the age of 18, attended Belmont, and learned the industry. He started writing uh, probably around the age of like 13, 14, he said, Um, and he's going to talk about all of that uh, in this episode. But when he moved to Nashville, he started uh, going out on the road with Jason Aldean during Aldean's early years. He was doing tour managing and a bunch of different things, Um, but when he got back, then he ended up continuing to write and ended up in the room with Kelsey Ballerini, Josh Kerr, and Jason Duke when they wrote the big hit, Dibs. He's going to tell you all about that story. He's also um, got so much stuff that's that's happened uh, throughout his life that he talks about with um, getting signed to a label, getting dropped, getting signed to another label, getting dropped, and then meeting Jay DeMarcus uh, through a write that they did together and ended up being brought on to Jay's record label, uh, Red Street Records, uh, that actually Jay started back in around 2018 as a Christian label, but uh, then decided he was going to have a country arm to this, and Ryan became his flagship artist, the very first artist that he signed to the country division of Red Street Records. He's going to tell you all about that story and so much more. He's also got his new EP, Phases, that he released back in July. Um, and he's going to talk about all that along with uh, his newest single, Heart to Break, uh, from that album. It's such a great episode. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did sitting down with him and hearing his story. Let's get to it. Here is Ryan Griffin. Hey, everybody. Here's another episode of Stories Behind the Songs. I'm your host, Chris Blair, and today I've got Ryan Griffin in the house. What's up? How you doing, buddy? I'm good, man. Thank thanks you for, for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Of course. So uh, let's just dive in. I always just kind of start <laughs> from the beginning. So yep. uh, you're from Florida, uh, grew up on a farm. Like, Walk me through how you, uh, how you got into music. Yeah, it's interesting. So I kind of had like two different lives uh, when I was down in Florida. I grew up up until 14 down in South Florida. And we literally went to the Keys every weekend. So it was like... That's rough. Yeah. Well, I was a kid. I didn't know any different. Like, they have pictures of me as an infant on the boat in a laundry basket. Like, that's (laughs) what they did. You know, that's what my folks did. Yeah. And so I didn't know any different. And then at 14, we moved up to Ocala, which is right above Orlando. And I always tell people, like, once you get above Orlando, it's basically just rural Georgia, you know? Yeah. And so that's what Ocala was like. And it was complete opposite. We had a 20-acre farm. Uh, my dad had a sod farm where he like grew St. Augustine the grasses down in Florida. And so I worked on the farm and literally like uh, just rode horses and lived the country life. Yeah. And then I moved to Nashville and went to college and never left. So you moved <laughs> You moved here at like 17, 18, something like that? 18, yeah. Yeah. And uh, went to Beaumont. Kind of learned, learned the uh, industry. Yeah, I did. I got some really cool experience. Like, I mean, you show up to Belmont. And you think you're like it, you think you're going to be like this big star, you know, and then you show up and you realize that all of the big fish from the small pond, you know, kind of vibe came to Belmont. And so everybody's excellent at what they do. Everybody's great. And so you just kind of learn from each other and hone your craft. And 
then I got to go out. We do an internship program. I think it was like my sophomore or junior year. And I got to go out um, on the road with Aldine in the very beginning. And I was interning at his record label and shipped his first single. You know, I'm dating myself, but shipped his first single to radio because I was the dude in the mailroom. And then I called him Peach. Uh, that was his nickname. And he would come into the label and we just kind of like hit it off as friends. And he's like, hey, Griff, you want to come out on the road with me? I need some extra hands. And I ended up staying out there for, I don't know, eight months to a year or something like that. And just kind of deferred a semester from college and and learned so much. It was crazy. I remember there were like, there'd be 100 people or 60 people in a club in the very beginning. And then at the end of his show, you know, there'd be half as many people in there. Then his song went, because nobody knew who it was. Yeah. And then his song went to country radio. And as soon as Hicktown took off, he'd be like, hey, man, is there anybody out there at the show, you know, out, out in the parking lot or whatever? And one day I remember walking up and being like, hey, you need to look through the curtain of the bus. And there was a line wrapped around the building. And it literally was like from one day to the next, it seemed like. Mm. It was the craziest experience. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is nuts how... Uh, and we're going to get to it in a minute, but yeah. you've got some new stuff coming out. And so yeah, we're waiting to see that with you. Like, <laughs> <laughs> From your lips to God's ears, yeah, uh, you know, right. you never know. This It's a completely different industry today. Yeah, it is. You know, it it's is. way, way different. Yeah. Um, all right. So when did you first uh, start singing and like picking up the guitar? <laughs> Depends on who you ask. You talk to my mom and she's <laughs> like, you were singing humming melodies before you were like putting together full sentences. My brothers would be, would tell you I was the most obnoxious younger brother to have. <laughs> I have two, two older brothers and I used to sit in the middle and in the back of our station wagon and I would sing every time like Dolly Parton or George Strait or Vince Gill came on. Those were like my three. Yeah. I would just sing at the top of my lungs in the car and thankfully I could actually sing. Like I had, you know, good pitch even back then. And but my brothers would just be like, Mom, make him shut up, make it stop. Cause I was just always singing. Yeah. But from there, I knew probably around, I don't know, 14, probably when I moved to Ocala. That's when I really started to chase it because I had some opportunities. There was like a guy named Paul Rogers who was in that regional circuit and he kind of took me under his wing and I would be like his roadie and then he'd let me hop up and sing a song with him, you know, on these, these clubs, you know, uh, just around Florida and Georgia. And my parents were crazy enough to let me kind of like go on weekend trips with him, you know, yeah. and just go out there and get the experience. And so once I kind of got that bug, I started playing like my own shows around Ocala and then the Strawberry Festival and 4-H clubs and literally any stage that would let me stand on it and, and play mm. songs. And I played a lot of covers and um, some originals that my brother and I wrote, you know, he wrote poetry and then yeah. I kind of would write the the melody to it. And that's how I got started in songwriting as well. But That's cool. So yeah, when was that? How old were you then? I was probably like 14 to 16, okay. right in that, yeah. that range. Awesome. Yeah. All right. So then uh, when you got to Belmont, were you focused on more of the songwriting at that point or artistry? Um, that's a good question. I mean, it was kind of both. I came to Nashville to be an artist. I knew that songwriting was an aspect of it, but it's never anything that I like. I came, I didn't come to Nashville to be a songwriter. I came to Nashville to be an artist, but I knew songwriting was going to be my, my like, um, my way to get there. And so when I graduated Belmont, 
I ended up getting my first pub deal with a boutique company, um, guy named Dan Hodges. Yeah. And he just kind of helped me develop as a songwriter, got me in the rooms. And that's where, you know, iron sharpens iron. That's like where I kind of started honing the craft for songwriting. And, but the whole, the whole goal has always been to be an artist, you know? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to, we're going to get there in mm -hmm. a little bit. Um, but before that, so you're, you're, you're working on songwriting. Yeah. Um, so walk me through like uh, what that progression was like and getting your first pub deal. So Belmont had a huge part in it. I played the country showcase, ended up winning the country showcase, went and played best of the best. And that's when Dan Hodges was there, a publisher. He then approached me after college um, and he actually approached me my senior year, I think it was, or junior year, one of those. I get a timelines, dude. Yeah. I'm not your guy. But uh, they tried to sign me to a publishing deal over at Murrah Music, which Roger Murrah was a, like a legendary songwriter yeah. and had a publishing deal, a pub publishing company at the time. And my attorney was like, yo, uh, it's your first deal, but if you were my son, I would tell you to run. Like, this is not a good publishing deal for you. So I took his advice and I just kind of went out and did my own thing and had part-time jobs in, in between. You know, I was hustling, trying to make everything work. I've been everything from a valet to, uh, you know, dressing up and being like a character that shows up to parties and just random stuff that you can, if you can imagine it, I've done it. And so I was kind of doing that. And then Dan started his, he kind of branched off from Murrah, started his own publishing company. And I was one of the first people he signed. And I trusted him at the time, and it was a great experience for me. So that was like my first introduction into, dude, I'm getting paid to write songs. And I could get rid of like one of my side hustles. So now I only had like one side hustle, and then I could really focus on songwriting and kind of like building my artist side as well. Yeah. And so I did that. That's where I met Jason Duke, who I wrote dibs with, yep. and... Um, just a bunch of my crew that I still have to this day that I love writing with Jason Massey. Um, some of the people are just, you know, have been with me from the very beginning. And, uh, so from there I was actually writing with Dan when I met Kelsey and we were writing over at Black River. That was her publishing company. She didn't have a record deal at the time. And it was me and her and Jason Duke and Josh Kerr. And Kelsey and I were writing previously, and I think Josh and, and Jason were writing previously, like same day, just yep. in the morning, their morning writes. And then we got done with our writes, and we kind of all congregated in the kitchen over there at the publishing house. And we were like, yo, let's say it's two o'clock or something. Like, hey, let's go over to Red Door, you know, and have a drink or whatever. And Kelsey's like, yo, I'm 20. I'm not 21. I'm like 19. Yeah. Can't go. I was like, huh, well, I guess, what do you want to do? Let's go write another song, I guess. So we went and sat down. And I remember, like, there wasn't even a couch in this room because it was under construction. And it was the only room that was available. So we all sat Indian style on the floor and had our guitars. And Josh was running back and forth from his right because his right hadn't finished yet. And we, Kelsey's like, yo, I have this idea, dibs. And then we just started playing it and we started and it just fell out. I mean, we wrote the song in like 45 minutes. Yeah. And I remember at the end, you know, there's a haze in it. Yeah. And uh, 
Kelsey and I were like, we love these haze. Well, and then Josh and, and Jason were, oh, we got to get rid of those haze. We don't like those haze. We ended <laughs> up winning. Um, and thankfully, cause you know, it it's a huge up, part of the song. It, it ended yeah. up doing really well. Yeah. And that's like my favorite part. If I'm ever singing it at one of my shows, singing the haze and getting everybody in, yeah. involved in it. But yeah, I remember at the end of that, right. Just kind of sitting there and being like, we all kind of looked at each other and I was like, I feel like this one's really special guys. And everybody kind of agreed. And then off to the races. Yeah. yeah. Duke almost got fired from his bartending job that day. Do you know that? I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. He like, <laughs> I guess there was like another, uh, another right with Kelsey that he like, they wrote in the morning that he was going to do it at night and he couldn't because mm -hmm. he was like, I got to go bartend and make money. And they wrote another great song. Uh, and he said that like when you guys were all getting back together, he yeah. was like, oh man, yeah, I don't have anything going on. But in his, it, he was like, I'm gonna get fired. Oh, and so he, like, he had to actually work that night. And he, no, he literally like left the, uh, <laughs> I can't, you don't, you really I don't, don't know. know this? No, I don't yeah, know this like, part. Right before, uh, that second right that day, uh, he like is going down, down the hall, like calling everybody he can to get, get his shift covered at the bar. <laughs> and, uh, and he was like, I mean, I'm not coming in. So yeah. <laughs> you guys are going to have to yeah, figure it out. Yeah. It was a, it was a good move. So, wow. Yeah. That's incredible. I'll have to talk to him about yeah. that one. <laughs> yeah. And, and get on, get on all you guys to just not go, okay, Kelsey, I'll see you later. We're going to Red Door. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's a beast when yeah. it comes to songwriting. So it was like, it was always a privilege to sit in the room with her, even at 19, because she just has a way, way with words and you've seen it throughout her, her yeah. whole career. Yeah. She's pretty incredible when it comes to that. Yeah. So, um, so what, what happened after that? Like how, like how did things start to unfold after, yeah. after Debs comes out? So a couple things happen. Like you start to feel a little bit legitimate, you know, it leg legitimizes you. And so you walk into rooms with a little more confidence, which is like, which is a, a great thing. You know what I mean? Anytime that you can, Duke and I were actually talking about this the other day. And anytime that you can kind of build your confidence it's like then you walk in and you just start writing better songs and you start building better relationships and all that kind of stuff and from that point i'll never forget it was probably i don't even know timeline wise but it, let's just say it was it was a year later um i was actually on sony at the time and so there was a minute where we were like is this a guy song and then everybody was like nah it's a girl song. <laughs> and so Kelsey ended up recording it. And so I was in this process at Sony, signed as an artist. And the guy who signed me, Gary Overton, he was the president of Sony at the time. He kind of got, I don't know if ousted is the right word, but he just got let go, basically. Like, he moved on. And Sony went through this eight-month stint where they had no leadership. Well, when they had no leadership, they froze all of our, all, all the baby acts, the new incoming yeah. acts, and they didn't let us do anything really. So I was just writing every day and, you know, trying not to be too frustrated that, <laughs> you know, I have this record deal, like think I'm going to be huge and famous. And it's like, finally made it to the NFL, if you will. And, uh, now I'm just like sitting there. So eight months, year goes by. Randy Goodman comes in, who's now the still currently the head of Sony wonderful man like love that dude he came in and he let go of all the baby acts basically and like was clean slate wanted a clean slate well all of us that got signed next thing you know 
we're back out on the street again. Mm-hmm. If you know anything about Nashville, it's like, man, you get a record deal, you kind of get tainted, and it's like people don't want to touch you with a 10-foot pole. And so I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And about that time, so I had lost my record deal. I had walked away from my publishing deal with Dan because it just didn't feel like it was the right, when, when it was time for me to re-up, it just didn't feel like the right fit anymore. And so I was literally sitting there going, I just had it all, and now mm. I have nothing. Like, I'm back at square one again. And so, obviously, the bills keep coming in, and the money stopped coming in, and had to go back to hustling, you know, getting the side jobs and all that kind of stuff, but still writing because I had a community. I didn't want to lose that community of writers. And so, my wife and I were sitting down at our little nook table in our house that we had just bought, and... We have a stack of bills over here that have to be paid immediately. I'm talking like mortgage, lights, electricity, water. Then we have a stack of bills over here that we could probably push off another month. And I just remember failing because we had previous, just gotten married not long before that. You know, as the man I want to provide, I want to like provide stability at least. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, I'm failing miserably here. How are we going to pay these bills? The next day, Kelsey calls and says, hey, Griff, guess what? Remember that song Dibs we wrote? Yeah, it's going to be on my first record. I can one-up that, though. It's going to be my second single to country radio. And so as soon as that happened, I was like, praise Jesus, you know? (laughs) And who knows what's going to happen, but at the same time, I was like, yes, this is amazing, and so that song ended up going number one. Josh Kerr and I, one of the songwriters on that song, were standing on a stage at the, um, uh, what was it called? Piedmont Theater, I think it was called. Um, or Piedmont, something like that, in Austin, Texas. And it was this beautiful theater, about 1,500 people. We were playing a charity benefit. And I remember one of uh, the radio reps from Black River was with us and she was standing side stage over by the curtain and we're playing our set and it's Saturday night and the chart's about to close and Dibs is at number two for the second week and it's not it's like is it going to go number one can we make it go number one and we'd look over in between each song and if she wasn't looking at us we knew that it was bad if she was looking at us and like thumbs up then it was like yo we have a chance We look over, we have one more song to play, and she won't make eye contact. And we're like, oh, Oh, man. Yeah. We get done with our last song of the set. We look over, and she is jumping up and down. (laughs) We literally, it was like the closest call, couple hundred points, which is nothing. Um, We ended up squeaking out that number one and getting the number one with dibs and we celebrated like crazy that night ended up all getting these little tattoos it's just a little heart but it's like on my hand on my heart you know that kind of thing just to commemorate it um and you know it was just such a a crazy turn of events how all that happened yeah and wow (laughs) how cool to to be with kerr and like yeah be able to celebrate that it was a really special moment yeah that's awesome This episode is brought to you by Sennheiser Microphones. When we first started this podcast, 
we were using some older microphones and Sennheiser came in and sponsored us and gave us some MK4s and 914s. And I mean, I'm telling you, it's made all of the difference in the world. We love these microphones. We use them at the listening room as well. And I just can't say enough great things about them. Go check out Sennheiser.com. If you are into music in any way, their microphones are hands down the best on the planet. Go check them out, Sennheiser.com. And thank you, Sennheiser, for the support and the sponsorship. We love y'all. Um, what would you say your favorite song that you've written is? It's mm. a good question. I think uh, that's tough, man, because I feel like I have seasons of my life my favorite song, there's two of them. A song that I released a long time ago and really had a, a pretty huge impact on my career. Um, song called I Would Have Left Me Too. And that song I wrote when I was really young in my career with a lady named Lisa Carver, who mm-hmm. she's not in town anymore, but yeah. man, she was just one of the coolest people I'd ever met yeah. in my life. And her and I, we sat down in her room on a couch much like this. And I pulled out my computer and thought I was like, you know, cool. Like I'm going to, that's when everybody was like using their computers and not writing things down. And, and she grabs my computer and shuts it and sets it down and hands me a yellow pad and a pencil. And she's like, we're not doing that today. We're going to do it, do it the right way. And we sat there and I told her the idea. And this was an idea that I had after doing some like soul searching as to why my previous relationship didn't work out. And I just was very honest with myself and realized that the mistakes that I made and I was like, damn, I would have left me too. And then the songwriter went Mm. off in me and I was like, Oh my gosh, I have to hold on to this. And so I told Lisa that unbeknownst to me, she had just broken up with her boyfriend. That was more like a husband because they had been together for like six or eight years or something like that. And so she understood that on a whole nother level. And we sat there and literally there's like tears on the paper. Like we're both just like going through this emotional healing process. Honestly, it was like therapy writing the song. I would have left me too. Um, that's probably the most impactful song I've ever written. One of my favorite songs is a song called uh, one prayer left that I wrote during, during COVID. And, It's just this whole idea of during that crazy two years that we had, it was like my world got flipped upside down and I actually lost another record deal. I was on Warner at that time and we were about to launch, which is one of my favorite stories to tell. Um, And then like right as we were about to launch, COVID hit and literally just flatlined everything. And I went through this cycle of ups and downs and all that during during COVID. And I just remember sitting down because everything was over Zoom. And I was writing with some really good friends that I trusted. And I was telling them what I was going through. And we ended up writing a song that's basically a gratitude song. It's like, if I only had one prayer left, I'd thank God for you. Like, mm. And I was writing it about my wife and my kids and my family and all the blessings that I've had in my life and yeah. my, my mom and dad and my brothers, just all of that. And uh, one of my favorite songs, it's the first song I ever got to play on the Grand Ole Opry. Oh, you man. Know, just a really impactful song. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I would say those are probably my two my two favorites. What's the uh, what's the Warner story? So after Sony, I was kind of like a free agent, just kept writing with my community. Like I said, didn't have a publishing deal, still had a manager. Um, and I went through this phase of like, I'm going to say yes. Like any opportunity that comes, I'm just going to say yes. And I woke up one morning and my phone was ringing and it was a buddy saying, hey, our right just canceled, our third just canceled. Do you want to come in and write? And I didn't happen to have a right that day. And I really didn't want to because I was like, oh, I was really looking forward to a day off, you know, get some ideas, just relax. And I said, yes. And so I hopped in the car and I drove to this right. Well, my friend ended up introducing me to the, the third that was in the room. His name was Joe Ginsburg. Joe was writing for BMG at the time. And unbeknownst to me, you know, well, Joe and I hit it off. So we start writing pretty much like every other week. And unbeknownst to me, my songs are going over the desk of Daniel Lee. Daniel Lee was the mm -hmm. big dog over at BMG at the time. And I get a phone call probably six months after starting to write with Joe. And Daniel Lee goes, hey, this is Daniel Lee. You probably don't know who I am. I'm over at BMG. And I just wanted to tell you, man, I love your music. I don't look at the names of the writers when songs come in. I just listen to the song and then I go back and look. And he's like, I got to a point <clears throat> where every time I could hear you in the song, like a vein of you in every song. Wow. Best compliment I've ever got. Yeah. And he said, I'd love to sit down and talk with you. So we literally sit down at coffee and he goes, I want to offer you a pub deal. Tell me what you need. I'll make it happen. I don't want to negotiate. It's not one of those things. He's like, just tell me what you need. So I did, and he made it happen. And so now I'm signed to BMG, just out of the blue. Boop. And <laughs> I'm like, this is amazing. I have this huge family, this huge team. The top dog over there is like, believes in what I'm doing. This is cool. Then he calls me up and he goes, hey, man, um, this is twofold. I was waiting, confirm everything, but now I can tell you. Um, there's a guy named Mike Busby. Have you ever heard of Busby? I'm like, yeah. You know, he wrote Try for Pink, found Marin Morris, uh, produced and wrote most of her first record, uh, Carly Pierce, Lady A, just feel it like he's yeah. written songs for everybody. And uh, he was looking, he'd only worked with female acts in Nashville up until that point. And he was the only guy still to this day that could balance living in L.A. and working in the pop world and being successful there and also living in Nashville part-time while having a family yeah. and being incredibly successful in Nashville. Yeah. Only guy I've ever seen do it and do it well. And uh, anyways, he's like, you know, Busby's looking for a male artist and I'm kind of his A&R guy. And so I'd love for you guys to meet. Let's do that. So we went to Urban Cowboy. We had my first Vucare, which I've never had a Vucare before at this point, but it's like, you know, a bourbon drink. I don't even know what that is. Yeah. It's like an old fashioned kind of, but way more uh, intricate. Like okay. there's Vucare. a whole, whole bunch of stuff that go in it. Like <laughs> if you get somebody that makes a good one, it's delicious. And uh, he, we just sit down and talk 
and we start geeking out about Brian McKnight. Brian McKnight mm-hmm. was like George Strait, Keith Urban, uh, Vince Gill, and Brian McKnight. Or that's my upbringing. Like when I hit middle school and started like diving into my own music, he was the guy because I was like, dude, he uses his voice differently, and I just want to be. I want to learn how to do that. So I'd sit in my bedroom and just like. Listen to his runs over. Annoy your brothers. Exactly. Yeah. And they'd be pounding on the wall. (laughs) Shut up. Um, But, anyways, we start geeking out over that and like the deep cuts and stuff. And then I get a call from Daniel Lee and he's like, hey, Busby wants to write. So then we start writing together and we hit it off. And then we started uh, recording a record together. And then from there, we end up getting signed to Warner Nashville. And, uh, you know, we're like blasting off, go to L.A., shoot this big music video for a song called Right Here, Right Now. Everybody's just on fire. It's awesome. Like, I can feel it. Like, this is my moment. You know, everybody says, like, you have a moment. And if you're, you know, if your preparation meets the opportunity, basically, it's like your moment can happen. And I was like, I'm ready. I'm prepared. Here's my opportunity. And COVID hits. We actually, before COVID hit, we got a phone call that uh, Busby was on a trip celebrating his anniversary and he came back and he wasn't feeling good. And he went into the hospital and got checked and found out that he had uh, basically a brain tumor, brain cancer. Yeah. And there was no coming back from it. And they were like, he's got a year, you know, maybe a little bit longer within, I think, six months. Yeah. He was gone. And so that wrecked all of our worlds. Yeah. And kind of flipped everything upside down. And so we went through that, mourned as a family, you know, the the Altadena family that he created. And um, then literally right after that, right when we were all starting to get back on our feet, COVID hit and ripped the rug out from under us again. And so that lasts for, you know, I don't know, a year, year and a half, something like that. And it seems like we're all just sitting around like writing songs every day still, trying to do podcasts, trying to like play Zoom shows, trying to do all of this stuff to like keep going, not knowing what the future is. And then I get a phone call literally out of the blue. In November, talked to Warner and they were like, dude, like you're it. You're the focus artist for whatever the next year was, 2020 or 2021, whatever it was. It's all a blur. <laughs> and then that January, towards the end of January, we get a phone call. I get a phone call from my manager and they're like, I don't know how to tell you this, but we just got a phone call from Warner and they said that they're dropping you. And we were all just like, what? None of this makes any sense. So long story short, that happens. And I'm like, well, now I've had two record deals. Nobody in town's going to touch me. And so I just keep doing what I did before. I just plow ahead. I keep writing. And right after I lost my record deal, I lost my publishing deal. So BMG left. Warner left. I'm sitting here with, in the same spot I was a couple years prior with some great music, but nobody knew it was out. Nobody knew it was there, you know. And I just keep writing. Put my head down. Plow forward. That's all I know how to do. Yeah. And uh, then randomly I 
look at my calendar and Jay DeMarcus is on my calendar for a write. And I'm like, whoa, this is cool. Rascal Flats. Like, yeah, they were a huge influence growing up as well. And I remember going to that right and being like, don't be a tool. Like, don't fangirl. <laughs> like, just keep it together. Be professional. That's what I'm like telling myself as I'm driving in. And I get there. And I was also thinking to myself, I was like, man, I hope he's, I hope he's nice. <laughs> like, you know, they say don't meet your, your like role models and ends up being the sweetest guy. Yeah. We write a great song. He takes us to lunch. Like, uh, it was me and Cameron Bedell and just hit it off, you know, then not that I would be expecting to keep a relationship with him. It's just like every other, right? You go in and you do your job and then you circle back around in a couple months and you write again. And I get a phone call from him probably three months later, just out of the blue. And he says, Hey, Ryan. I'm like, Hey, Jay, what's up, buddy? <laughs> and, uh, he goes, Hey, uh, love to meet for coffee. Just want to know what's going on in your life. I said, Awesome. Let's do it. So I go meet him. And within like, a couple minutes of our conversation. He was like a kid in a candy shop, man. He was like, I can't do this anymore. I got to tell you what's going on. I'm starting a country division of this label. They have a Christian label called Red Street. Yep. And he's like, I'm starting a country division of this label and I want you to be the flagship artist. And I was just like, what? <laughs> like, come again? And he, I was like, yes, dude, 100%. And he goes, you don't need to like go talk to anybody. I was on my fourth meeting with Sony, ironically. So this was when like Salt, Lime and Tequila started taking off and yeah. all that kind of stuff. And so I was on my fourth meeting with Sony, about to go meet with Randy again. In the first meeting, I, I love the fact that they approached it this way. Um, she goes, Margaret over at Sony, she goes, hey, let's just get the elephant out of the room. Would you consider coming back to a label that previously dropped you? I was like, of course, I have no bad blood. I just want to get my music out there. So we were four meetings in. Then I go talk to Jay and I'm like, my heart was just like, this is it. Yeah. This is where you need to go. A couple months later, I find out that Red Street, my wife actually asked at dinner. She goes, Jay, what does Red Street mean? Like, why did you name it Red Street Records? And he said, paid by the blood of Christ. Like, that's what it's all about. And I'm literally sitting at the table like, oh my gosh, I had no idea that that was the the depth of of what that meant. And so it all just like, I don't know, man, I instantly knew. You know how those moments yeah. where your gut and your heart and everything just lines up and it goes like, this is where you need to be. It doesn't happen often in life, I feel like. But that was one of those moments. Yeah. And how cool. I mean, he started his Christian label in like 2018-ish, something like that. I think somewhere that. around there, yeah. Um, you know, and then when he decided he was going to start this country division, like, mm -hmm. you're the first guy that he comes to, the first ones that he signs. It's like I was I mean, blown away and honored and just like all of the feelings, you know what I mean? And excited because so much of the journey of being an artist in Nashville is – you put your head down and you just go and you know there's it's not healthy to sit here and be like well what if that would have worked out or what if this or sure. should i done this differently or could i have done no, you know none of that it's just a waste of time yeah 
just any, I mean, just in general in life. And so when that happened, it was like a little God wink or a pat on the back of being like, you're exactly where you're supposed to be. Just keep plowing ahead. And so it kind of made everything make sense, you know? Yeah. And all of the stuff that didn't make sense previously. <laughs> yeah. Man, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Of course, dude. It's such a great story. It's been a crazy journey. So let's let's shift to what's going on now with, yeah. with Red Street. Like um you last year you had like two hundred and sixty something dates out on the road. Yeah, dude. Um you're just you're burning burning rubber and you've got you've got some great songs that you've released. Another one coming out soon. Thank you, man. So um yeah, let's let's talk about all that. Yeah. So um one of the coolest things about Red Street is that they're very nimble. They can kind of like, they can move quick. And that's what I loved about them. Um, major labels kind of feel like big, you know, cargo ships that like take forever to make a decision or turn. And with Red Street, it's like, dude, we're a little sports boat. Like we can just whip around and be like, oh, let's shift gears and go over here. And so salt, lime and tequila, that's a whole nother part of the story that I kind of skimmed over when... When I lost my deal at Warner, I was feeling sorry for myself and I was just like moping around for like the lot for like a week after. And my wife looked at me and she goes, you have hundreds of songs and you have a social media outlet like Instagram, TikTok. Just start putting your music out there and bypass everything. All the red tape just go straight to the fans. And I was like. It's a good idea. And she goes, honestly, what do you have to lose? And I was like, oh, too soon, babe. <laughs> too soon. <laughs> but she was so right. And so I started throwing songs out. And within like a week or two of putting out a song every day, I woke up the next morning to see Salt, Lime, and Tequila just like a million views overnight, two million views, six million views. And it just kept going. Then I'd put out another video and it'd be three million, four million, you know, and another video, two million, three. It just kept going and it was just this viral thing. And I was like, dude, this is awesome. I'm a Florida boy through and through, salt water in my veins. Like, and I feel like this is, I know this song. I know this lifestyle. And so, you know, it went number one at Sirius XM. 25 million streams or something, you know, organically because DSPs really didn't pick it up like Spotify and, you know, Apple, yeah. all them, Amazon. Um, and so it was all this organic growth and, and thing that was happening. And so, um, I was just holding on, man. I was white knuckling and it just like, woohoo, let's go. And so about a year later is when I signed with Red Street. And they said, we want to take Salt, Lime, Tequila to radio. And I was like, heck, yes, we do. Let's roll, boys. Yeah. And we hopped out on the road last year. And it was interesting. It was radio tour and festivals and radio tour and a fall tour. And all of this just combined ended up being about 260-something days. And I think I calculated I was on like 150 flights last year because so much radio tour is like two flights a day, mm -hmm. you know, flying in, doing radio in the morning, hitting another little city that's close and doing an afternoon radio lunch, hopping on a plane, going to dinner somewhere else in another state, you know, that kind of thing. And it was a lot. 
it was a whole lot. And we were a new label and there was no, it was just, let's go, you know, and we will figure it out as we go. Yeah. And that's kind of how it was. And it ended up being awesome. Like I met a whole bunch of radio people that I adore and I love and have built some amazing relationships with those guys. And, you know, we, we pushed salt, lime and tequila as hard as we could and, uh, got it out there. And I'm so, so thankful and so proud that we were able to do it, yeah. you know, cause I didn't see a plan, <laughs> you know, <laughs> prior to red street hopping on board. I was just like, all right, let's ride this ship until it, until it, you know, do you feel like you have so much more appreciation though? Oh, a hundred percent. Like, you know, I mean, what if the first one hit, right? Yep. Or the second one, yep. you know, like to, to, to be dropped by two labels and keep going. I mean, how many people would have just packed up and gone back to Florida? Yeah. You know, I mean, I see it all the time. We, we both do. I mean, there's, mm -hmm. you know, so much talent in this town and like, you know, it's, it's a lot of no's yeah. and, um, man, I just, I commend you and, and, you know, just how good you are to just keep driving through that. And then, yeah, like the, just the appreciation of like, might not have been the way that you wanted it to, to happen in your yeah. plan, but it was his, <laughs> yep. you know, like, yeah, so. man, it's a good place to be in a good spot to be in now. You know, there was a lot of stress and a lot of worry along the way, to be completely honest, you know, it's just like anything else in life, especially when now it's not all about me. It's about me and my wife. Yeah. Now it's not just about me and my wife. It's about my two boys. You know, Levi is about to be eight. Jude's just turned three. And the 18 year old dream looks a lot different now as an adult, as a father, as a husband. A lot more responsibility um, rides on this this journey now. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm just really thankful that I get to still put out music, that I'm that I'm getting to still write songs every day and be creative and go out and play shows and continue to build my community here in Nashville. And, you know, we just released an EP called Phases and have a song at Country Radio called Heart to Break. And and the whole thing is like it's so funny. I actually thought that so much of this record, I named it Phases because it's it's like all of the phases that you go through trying to find trying to find the love of your life. Trying to find the one that makes you stop looking. And, you know, it starts with falling in love and then breaking up and then learning your lessons and healing up enough to try again. And that's kind of what the entire record is about. But the more I live with it, it's like I learn something from it every time I listen to it. Mm. And I was talking to Adam Hambrick, who's a writer on Heart to Break. And I said, what does Heart to Break mean for you? Where did you write that from? And he said, you know, if I'm being really honest with you, I wrote it about the music industry. Because the whole concept of the song is, I'm all out of heart to break. Dude, I don't have anything left to give you. You've taken it all. And now I just got to like retreat, heal up enough to try again. And I look at that EP and I actually realized the other day that it is a journey about love, but it's also a journey about life and the struggles of like, you know, falling in love with the music industry, if you will. And then going through the ups and downs and getting burnt and broken and it's disheartening. And then, 
healing up enough to try again and continue that cycle until you find, you know, it ends with a song called If All I Ever Do. And the idea is like, if all I ever do is love you, I'll be fine. And so it's just this whole perspective of these phases that we go through in life. I think you can relate it to love. I think you can relate it to life in any way, honestly. Yeah. And it's it's interesting how my record is actually like revealing itself more and more to me, like what I was writing and what I was feeling beneath just the surface of love, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Man, you want to play uh, something from that EP? I'd love to. Let's do it. I'd love to. This is hard to break. Little piece of it. You'd never know she didn't tell you. She won't tell you. She's out there dancing, hiding it well, hiding it well, yeah. She's beautiful, got every on her. No, you ain't the first one. Don't take it personal if she don't want to talk. You've got to understand that girl has heard it all. She'll drink a drink you buy and then she'll walk away. She's just all out of heart to break. Mm, so good, man. Dude, it's, it's so funny when Adam said that. It was like, yeah, I get that. I get that journey. Our journeys have kind of paralleled each other. You know, he had a, a deal on Universal and all that kind of stuff. And and uh, it's just interesting how music is can be interpreted in so many different ways. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Man. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks again for being here and sharing, yeah, sharing part of your story. Can't wait to get back together and talk about what happens next. Yeah, bro. I will say, I think I mentioned this to you earlier. We're at the listening room right now. Yeah. And I have throughout that journey of being broke as a joke and like trying to figure out how I'm going to provide and how I'm going to pay bills. I have sat on this stage many, many, many times. And because of this stage and what you've created here, I've been able to like survive as an artist. Mm. So I appreciate you pouring into this community too and giving us a place. Oh, thank you. Yeah, man. Yeah means a lot to have people like you up on the stage so that's why we do it thank you i can't wait to get back on it here soon yeah <laughs> well as we as we wrap up i always end with the same question yeah so if we go back to eight-year-old ryan oh yeah in florida okay everything that you've been through mm-hmm. um everything that you've learned the whole journey what advice do you give yourself if you go back and talk to eight-year-old self right now? Mm, that's really good. Um, I would say, I'd say, like, there's going to be a lot of temptation to chase things. There's going to be a lot of temptation to... Uh, There's a lot of people, a lot of cooks in the kitchen, and there's a lot of people telling you who you should be. Well, if you would just do this, and if you would just do that. And I think one of the biggest things is fans can see through that 100%. Like, the more authentic you can be, the more you can figure out who you are, who you want to be as an artist, 
what voice you want to have because you have a platform. Yeah. You know, once you get there, you have a platform to speak into people's lives. So what do you want to say through your songs? What do you want to say through your artistry? Who do you want to be? And how do you want to like support people in that way um, from the stage? Figure that out because there's going to be a lot of people telling you what they think you should be. And so if you walk in with that cut in stone, you know, like carved in stone, like this is who I am. I think that um, it's a very, very important thing to be as an artist. Just don't waver from it because there's going to be a lot of people trying to get you to. <laughs> so good. Yeah. Man, thank you so much. Thank you, brother. It's been a blast. Yeah, man. I appreciate it. We will put uh, information in our liner notes of where to find Ryan and uh, and to get his music. Make sure you go to Spotify, Apple, wherever you listen to music and uh, check out that new EP. Heck yeah. And uh, look for him out on the road. You've, uh, you've been listening to Ryan Griffin. This is another episode of Stories Behind the Songs. We'll see you next time. Cheers. This has been an episode of Stories Behind the Songs with Chris Blair. For more information after the show, head over to chrisblair.com. That's where you can find information on these episodes, trailer notes, video links, all kinds of great stuff. Also, make sure to leave us a great rating on iTunes. Like and follow us on Spotify, YouTube, wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave us a comment. Let us know what you think. I really hope that you think this show is awesome and we really appreciate the love and support. I promise to keep gathering great content and continuing to sit down with more amazing songwriters and artists as we grow. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for the support. We'll see you next time.